Hello and welcome to the COG podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Quality of Government Institute at the University of Gothenburg. In this show, we have conversations with well-known experts to try to make sense of politics and governments around the world. Hosting this show is Professor Victor Lapuente, and in this episode, he will talk to Catherine de Vries. Catherine is the Dean for International Affairs and Professor of Political Science at Bocconi University in Italy. In her work, Catherine examines some of the key challenges facing the European continent, such as Euroscepticism, political fragmentation, migration and corruption. And in this episode, we'll hear about exactly those topics as Victor and Catherine dive into thinking about today's Europe in relation to the war in Ukraine, generational and national differences when it comes to supporting the EU, Brexit, COVID-19 and far-right parties. Catherine will also tell us about her study on the two-speed Europe, which she categorizes as those wanting enhanced cooperation within the European Union and those who want to opt out if the cooperation were to be intensified. Finally, we'll hear a discussion on Catherine's book, Political Entrepreneurs, The Rise of Challenger Parties in Europe, which will help us answer the question, what do Giorgia Meloni and Elon Musk have in common? We hope you enjoy the episode, and don't forget to like, share, and subscribe if you do. Welcome to the podcast of the Quality of Government Institute, where we have conversations with well-known experts to try to make sense of politics and governments all over the world. Today in the podcast, we have Professor Catherine De Vries, Dean for Diversity and Inclusion and Professor of Political Science at Bocconi University in Italy. She's a world-leading expert in the study of public opinion. She has published on the best outlets on all pressing issues we have been discussing in politics in the latest decade, uh, the rise of challenger parties in the aftermath of the financial crisis, the present and future of the European Union, the effects of COVID, the war in Ukraine. Welcome to our podcast, Catherine, an honor and a pleasure to have you here. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start with the most pressing issue, the, the war in Ukraine. You, you are an expert on public opinion and you have explored uh, from early on, actually, in the war, how public opinions and attitudes in Europe have evolved since the beginning. And you conducted a two-wave uh, survey of nearly 12,000 EU citizens between March and, and June this year. And no big news that that uh, we more Europeans uh, support Ukraine in the war, but uh, up to which extent are we ready to to put the money where our mouth is, and and especially if we are ready to go through a, a tough winter. So, what is your prognosis from now onwards based on your, the results of your data in the, the previous months? Yeah, so I think it's a very important question, right? So, what is the kind of ability for politicians to keep supporting Ukraine in the way that they've done at the European level. Of course, there's variation across member states, but overall, there's been strong support. And that only works when there's some backing in the public for for that, especially for the reasons that you outlined, that if you cut gas, if you have to go into a recession because of that, because companies cannot produce as much anymore, et cetera, et cetera. You know, people are also going to feel it in their in their wallets. So what we did together with the Batisman Foundation in Germany is basically poll people on these type of questions. And what is very clear is that the war in Ukraine is a watershed moment, that people do really think it's also Europe's war, i.e. that they're on the side of Ukraine. Of course, you see some differences in the way that you've also seen that with political parties. So some supporters 
of far-right parties, but also of far-left parties that are usually a bit skeptical of NATO or these kind of, you know, the use of force have been a bit more skeptical, but overall the support is high, both in March, you would expect that, but even now, if you look at it in the summer. However, I do think that you see a little bit more wary if you start digging a little bit deeper into it. So I think the idea is that, well, refugees come, but they should also go home again, that we should support Ukraine, but not at all costs. So I do think now you have a time where you could also see an unraveling. So you still see support, but I think it's, let's say, there's more variation, more differences on different questions as to what Europeans uh, think. Yeah, this is very interesting. You have pointed out a difference in terms of political ideologies with a politicization of the issue with far right and also the alternative for Deutschland is the most clear case, probably with less committed to the support of Ukraine, we can say, and also the far left. But there are also other differences. And I would like to ask you about these other differences. First of all, generational differences. Are the opinions of the young different for, from the old? And also, are differences across countries? Are there significant, let's say, territorial differences within Europe and within Western Europe? Yeah, so I think it's the last question. Let me take that first. So you do see a very strong support for Ukraine in countries bordering Ukraine. So Baltic states, Poland, for example, Poland also holding a quite different position than Hungary on this issue, reflecting also what the governments have been saying. And interestingly, you also see some more wariness in countries like Italy and Greece, where it's much more 50-50 about the support. Overall, more support than not, but a little less. In a country like the Netherlands, I'm Dutch by origin, very transatlanticist, very US-focused, also in its public opinion, let's say, UK-focused, you see, you know, again, a lot of support. So you see some of the cases where, where you would suspect it. So overall support. But very strong, I think, in the countries that especially feel that they might be next, to be really honest, and also that feel that they've had a history with Russia historically. So the imagery about Russia is, uh, is, is different. Across generations, so you see some variations, and that's kind of interesting. But I think overall, it's also interesting that in the younger generations, it's also about the possible policy response to the crisis that if you look at, for example, climate change support and wanting to change policies and energy policy, that's very, very, let's say, popular among younger generations. So I think that 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 also what the war means for different generations is different depending on when you're looking, looking at it. And for some younger people, this really fits their overall stance on climate change. So it might not necessarily be that the war is the strongest thing in their heads, but the responses that we're providing. But I think then coming back to your first question about how long it will take, I mean, if it really, you know, if the recessions hit as strongly as are predicted, of course, some of the first people that are going to lose their jobs are going to be young people, right? That are first in, first out. So I do think that there is also some, I, I suspect that we're going to see larger changes among the younger generations because some of this might hit them quicker and harder uh, than some of the older generations. And here, many of these things that you're pointing out also uh, highlight the, the role of the European Union in the sense that, okay, what can uh, Europe do to try to keep this uh, position together? It seems that uh, the Ukrainians are fighting to become a part of the West, and what West means to them is probably more European Union than, than NATO, although NATO might be necessary 
But what is the the role of the European Union here? Do you think this is going to have consequences for the European Union, both in sense of up to which extent they can keep a cohesive position with the president of the commission that at least seems quite committed to this, but also uh, up to which extent the, the European Union should try to also push this idea of, okay, we need to become also a military power or on the contrary, we should rely more on the US because it's the, the safe uh, bet. Yeah, so I think in some ways, the Ukrainian war happening in the wake of Brexit, which was ultimately a bit of a unifying moment for Europe, right? Uh, seeing that, you know, the, the imagery from the, from the UK politically and economically was not so good. So that, I think, helped in the initial response and the legacy of Donald Trump. I think many people remembered, wow, you know, like we cannot only trust the US. So for the first time, you actually saw a quite, let's say, European response to it. In the first days, the commission president was doing a lot of the talking, while a lot of the, the leaders of national member states were a bit behind. Of course, that changes in the EU. It always changes because, you know, Macron might have something to say, the French president or the German chancellor. Then we saw a little bit of, well, Germany said that they were going to support a lot, but then they realized the cost of it, and then they went back a little bit. So we saw a little bit this this kind of back and forth. But overall, if we look at it historically, I think it's been a quite unified response from Europe, the big exception being Hungary, of course. But to be fair, Hungary has been the exception on many things when it comes to the EU lately. And it also fit actually the overall approach that the EU was already providing, which was a green deal, the idea that we should green our economies and this was part of it. That also created a little bit of trouble that you now see that, of course, to get off Russian gas. Uh, I'm in Italy on Sunday, or you just recently, it was the first day that Italy no longer bought uh, Russian gas, is next to Germany, a country that was very dependent on, on Russian gas. But for that, we ne- might not have necessarily greened, right? Some countries have gone back to nuclear, some countries have even gone back to coal. So there has also been a little bit of a discussion about what this then means for the EU long-term goals when it comes to climate change. But I think overall, on the line has been quite consistent on this issue, as you say, and the EU has moved quite quickly in the areas that you already had talked about in terms of there were treaty bases was used in order to provide financial support and weapons, et cetera. Of course, member states ultimately provide that, but it was done by, by the EU framework, let's say, And also, you know, the fact that we actually have the Ukraine being an an accession member where accession was kind of off the agenda for a long time, right? Think about debacles with with Turkey and uh, and that taking a very long time, people being a bit wary about Balkan accession. And that's kind of the Ukrainian or the, the war in Ukraine has also put that back on the spot. So overall, I think Europe has moved quite quickly. The question now is, you know, when public opinion will be maybe also less more wary, people are going to be, be a bit more tired of the conflict and they're going to feel it in their wallets and, you know, the, the economic prospects aren't good. How long is this unity going to uh, going to last? When now the former uh, Italian prime minister, Mario Draghi, was kind of interviewed at the end of his days, right? Of course, uh, Roger Meloni, far-right politician, took over. But she's, by the way, quite pro-Atlanticist and and quite pro-Ukraine. So contrary to some other Italian politicians on the right, he was asked, so like, what do you think how the war has played in? He said it's fundamentally changed Europe because I think the idea was that we do have to do it together. The question is how much together? And I think before that, also, especially post-Brexit, was still a bit of the question of like, are we going to do it at all together, right? Is there going to be an unraveling? Are there more member states going to leave? 
I mean, these were discussions that we were having six years ago, right? So in that way, I think that we've seen very different response than usual also actually in the recovery fund to deal with the kind of uh, the COVID fallout. We've seen a more unified approach coming from Europe. It's by far not uh, European integration by stealth, but it is it is much more uh, together, let's say, in an approach than uh, they've been used to in the last decades. It's nice to hear that the Brexit and Trump have had good effects at some point and, and to yeah, to help the, the European Union project. Let's continue on this long-term development of the European Union, which is the future of the European Union. We There's a lot of talk about this idea of two-seed Europe. There's a lot of talk, but not so much work and not so much research. And you have empirically actually mapped in different countries the public support for this two-speed Europe, although you call it more technically differentiated integration. So what are your your main findings? Do people in Europe really want two Europes, a a core Europe and a sort of a la carte? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so indeed in the academic and Brussels jargon, it's called differentiation, right? Or differentiated Europe. And normally how we talk about it is two speeds. There are kind of two forms. One is what is called enhanced cooperation. So certain member states really feel very strongly about something. Let's say about giving more weapons to Ukraine, they would themselves collaborate together and move quickly. So then you would get some member states behind, some member states ahead. The Eurozone is kind of like that, right? Some member states have have a shared currency, others don't. Then there's also another form of differentiation or let's say two speeds, which can come from what we call opt-outs. So some member states go further and some other member states stay back. Interestingly, on Ukraine, we saw actually a reversal of an opt-out, which was Denmark, Denmark didn't want to really do any foreign policy within the European Union and actually post Ukraine in a referendum said, no, 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 we're also going to go back. So, you know, you see this kind of happening. It's it's not maybe one directional. We're going to go to more or less. So the first, I think, response to your question is we already have a lot of differences. We kind of have two speeds on, on, on different matters. Actually, as a small footnote, I think partly what accelerated the British criticism with the EU or the the uneasiness of the Brits was the euro, right? They were not part of the euro. They were a huge economy. They didn't really have anything to say in 2010 about their response. And I think that created some uneasiness. So you've seen already some differentiation in that way or, or differences in that way. Then when it comes further now, some people very realistically say, well, it's the only way forward. It's the only way forward because, you know, there's so many, how can you get 27 member states to, you know, agree on everything? So we do need to provide some of that. And that is kind of pragmatic approach. It will be a solution to overcome gridlock in the European Union. You, by the way, for example, hear that very strong. I know you're Spanish, but from the Spanish government, like, okay, you know, if others don't want to go, let's just go, right? It's a very pro-EU government, wants to kind of move forward. Macron has also said similar things. So if you look at public opinion and you look at this kind of enhanced cooperation, so some member states going forward together and others staying behind or opt-outs, you know, other member states go and you say as one member state, I'm going to leave behind, that different people like different things. So what I just mentioned, the kind of more pro-EU Spanish government wants to kind of do this enhanced cooperation. That's what you also find in the public. So very pro-EU people are just like, what are we waiting for? Let's just go together. And those people are also on average more on the left. So there seems to be also an interaction with their political ideology, maybe more pragmatic. Maybe they think that they can use the EU for more climate, for more social policy, for, you know, it it is, it is an expansion of their, of their ideology. 
But the opt-outs, it's actually more your skeptics that would like to see that. So they want differentiation, but a different level of differentiation. They want to keep the EU the way it is, but if the EU goes further, they want to be able to opt out, right? So it's a different direction. They actually want to move a bit back. And then others want to differentiate to move forward. And there you also see it's more accommodated with being on the right. So like saying, well, maybe they want less regulation. They want to do less together. So the problem with that is, so if we think that this two-speed Europe is a way to deal and overcome gridlock, well, maybe it exacerbates the gridlock, right? If you have within countries very different constituencies that think very differently about the EU, it doesn't mean that you're going to create a more pragmatic solution to the problem because not everybody agrees on that. So I think that this level of two speeds is kind of a fact that we're doing it in different policy areas. But I don't think it's necessarily the silver bullet in the way that people describe it. So Macron has said that, right? Why don't we, every time when there's a difficult negotiation, he comes up, why don't we use enhanced cooperation? And like, why don't we go for it? And I think that there is something to say for the maybe more careful that was traditionally associated with Merkel. I know she's also, Chancellor Merkel, she's also eh, now criticized a lot because of her Russia a gas strategy, but she had a little bit of a different approach and said, well, if you want the EU to stay together and to move forward, you have to be careful with not creating two levels of membership, a lot of differentiation or where you basically get the good guys and the bad guys or the, the best students in the class and the less good students in the class in two groups. So I, I personally am a little bit more on the side of caution that I think that some differentiation is needed in order for the EU to move forward. But creating a general two-speeds Europe, I, 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 I'm a bit more skeptical of that idea. Yeah, and along the lines of what you say, also Angela Merkel pushed for trying to vaccinate all citizens of the European Union uh, was also moved by this idea. We have to have all the citizens in Europe getting this feeling that we are on board on the same boat, that exactly. there are two boats here. I would like to ask you on, on this because you have pointed out that the differences between the left, people on the left and people on the right, but are there still differences between uh, Northern European and Southern European countries on this? Because it was said that uh, the left in Southern Europe was more pro-Europe because they wanted to get the same, the average <laughs> level of social protection and move upwards. And on the contrary, in the North, it was the right because they were to go down a little bit in, in social protection. Do we still see that on the on, the, on these two speed uh, research? Yeah, so I, I think that's definitely not, not changed. So my own research has also very much been even not looking at differentiation, but just more or less Europe, that you do see that there's differences, just the EU puts together economies and countries which are very different uh, socially, politically, economically. And what you really do see is, is differences in the extent to which you want to see more. So let's just take my country as an example, the Netherlands had the, the leader of the frugal four, as it's often called, very often putting a break on integration. And that illustrates very much what you were just saying, Victor, like the idea that, oh, we're all, yeah, we're doing very well. What's the problem? Like, we're not, we don't need to do anything more. While, of course, the analysis maybe of an academic would be, well, partly why a small open economy like the Netherlands is doing well is because of the European Union. Without the European Union, it would be much more difficult, which you see in the UK right now. In the other country, so in that way I share kind of these two stances in my own uh, biography that I, I, I work and live in Italy. There you see, even though people are skeptical about the EU sometimes, but oftentimes the average Italian wants more Europe in order to deal with the issues. It would be quite very similar in Spain, for example, or in Portugal. So France, somewhat in the middle, maybe a bit split, which also you show, see politically, right? Macron sometimes goes with more southern member states, sometimes with more northern member states. 
But you have this idea where that there is a lot of, let's say, your skepticism or critique about Europe, but it's often for different reasons. Because it's you look very much as to what you have and what you can get. And in the North, it's like, oh, we're all kind of fine. Why are we going to change the equilibrium? Where in the South as well, the deal here had the euro, for example, the euro has been a very expensive currency for our economy. So in order for us to do better, we need to have more support for debt or for other elements or for economic development, right? So the often the reasons are very different for people to be critical of the EU. I think they're coming back to the question about Ukraine and Brexit because the alternative, either looking east towards Russia, the had the danger from Russia, or looking more to the north, let's say the UK, UK, where you see well, what happens if you leave the European Union, especially also the single market, that maybe the alternative now doesn't look so good. So our criticism has, has maybe reduced a little bit. It's not so Eurosceptic anymore, but I've called it sometimes before, maybe it was exit skepticism. People were flirting with, with, with exit, right? And now it's a bit remain skepticism. So like we want to stay in the European Union, but we want to change the European Union to what's in the favor for us. And the issue, of course, is if we keep looking at the European Union three of these national glasses, everybody's sometimes going to win and sometimes going to lose. In order for that to be accepted, you do have to kind of buy into the general idea that solidarity across borders, be it cultural, be it economic, be it political, is kind of needed. So I think historians probably will look back at this and see, like, what well, was this then the time where that, that solidarity developed or not? I mean, it's now too early to say. I do think that uh, it's very important to keep in mind that the position you have as a country within the EU also very much affects the extent to which what you want from Europe. So, and the Netherlands looks very different than Italy, and that you see reflected also in the in the discourse, let's say, about the EU. If the EU advances with crisis, obviously now we have a great opportunity. And also going back to another crisis and another paradoxical result, uh, we have the, the COVID, an issue that you have researched also quite a lot. And it's uh, one of the greatest threats we have uh, felt in Europe for a long time. But paradoxically, around the world, many governments experienced a boost in, in popularity during the, the onset of the outbreak. So in order to explore that, you actually, with your authors, took advantage of a smart research design, although by accident, but very good, which is that you, you look at how COVID-19 outbreak in one country affected incumbent support in other countries. I am talking about Italy, which was the first country with a wide lockdown in, in Europe, Europe in yeah. Europe and March 9, 2020. That happened while you were doing the field work of surveys in other European countries, France, Germany, Poland, and Spain. So you could examine really how an event abroad that alerted the citizens in Germany, France, Poland, and, and Spain of an imminent crisis. And before the governments in those countries had taken any response, although there were talks of response mm -hmm. in all of these countries, obviously. So which was the, the main result? And, and do you think still that it holds afterwards? Yeah, so what you see is very similar to, I think, what I described to you, although I didn't research that about Ukraine. So oftentimes what you get, and I think what we wanted to illustrate here, that it doesn't even need to affect your own country. It might be something that happens somewhere else, is that basically in a time of crisis, you see a little bit of a rallying around the flag. And we cannot really uncover the mechanism, like we don't really know why, but kind of the other literature also on war, on terrorist attacks, kind of suggests that people are quite, you know, anxious when that happens. For example, virus that they don't know in a lockdown, and what they want is government to deliver for them. And they will give almost, let's say, a 
a boost in confidence for the government in order for the government then to implement policies. But there's where the crux is. So that leads to an initial boost in support. But across time, as the government's response becomes clear and some people might be unhappy with it, so they realize, wow, in order to deal with the crisis, you have to stay home or you have to lock up your bar or your restaurant. Or Then you, after a while, you see also that that support for the government slowly declines. So what we show in this particular paper is that even before, indeed what you say, that the lockdowns were implemented in other countries, you saw an increase in support for countries outside of Italy because of the lockdown that was implemented in Italy, which became kind of out of the blue. I mean, I lived in Italy. I almost went from one day to the other. We couldn't leave the house, right? It was There was a talk about the, the virus, but not necessarily a talk about repeating what had happened in China, these kind of lockdowns. So that, that creates an increase. But of course, later on, when you look a year later at the level of support for the governments, it did eventually decline in some countries quicker because the response was worse. So... Initially, for example, in the UK, it went up again with the vaccines. But before that, it was with this lackluster Boris Johnson, uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson approach, not locking down, locking down, kind of unclear guidance. But I think what happens in crisis periods is that people want decisive government and they want decisive government. But then after a while, when they see the actual consequences of what that divisive government, then sometimes they don't like everything that they see. So it, it increased again. And I think what you see a little bit with Ukraine is initially there's a lot of support. But then as it becomes clear that there's also costs to this approach, then you see public opinion becoming a little bit more wary again and maybe support for governments going, uh, going, going down. So it just kind of dependent when you held the election. The Dutch election was held very close to this COVID price. So Mark Rutte actually got a boost from that, the prime minister. Then in Macron, it was much more difficult. And Dra you know, Draghi, he didn't, even, he didn't even stand for the government. But many not government parties in Italy, like uh, Meloni's party that now won, because the election was so much later than the COVID crisis, there was nothing left anymore of a boost for the government or so on, it was already quite gone, quite the opposite. People wanted to have an opposition party in power that had not been part of the government post-COVID, basically, and wanted to change. So I think that's what you often see also in, in wars, also around terrorist attacks, that uh, after an initial period of support, you see waning again. I think it's not a, a so obvious result in, in the sense that we can say that yeah, we see normally a rally around the flag, but also there are all these research uh, showing that uh, governments are blamed for shark attacks as yeah. well that have nothing to do with government. So we could see that we have the shark attack on mechanism on the one hand and the rally around the flag. And it's very interesting to see which one actually can be working at the very least at, at yeah. short term. And you have said that, of course, then there are after variations in the countries. And you you say uh, that might be depending on the response. And my question is, depends on the response to the COVID, depends also on other fundamentals of, of government. For example, the University of Gothenburg at the Quality of Government Institute, we would say, well, it depends a lot about the quality of government. It doesn't depend so much about the ideology of the government or uh, of uh, has a big or a small government response, but depends on having uh, impartial institutions in place that treat all citizens equally, if it is a strict lockdown or if it is a very relaxed or non-existent like in Sweden, for example. Definitely, I think state capacity really matters right? if you're really able to lock down. And then also 
that you're able to find a middle road, right? Of course, the Swedish response was very controversial, also by virologists. And I think, you know, Andres Tergen was not, uh, it was not shared outside of Sweden, that approach. It did also lead, to be fair, to more excess deaths than in other Scandinavian countries, because we cannot really compare it across. But that's not to say that it was wrong. It's say that you have to find a balance between restricting freedom of people and getting psychological issues, uh, uh, closing schools, which might also have kinds of effects, and certain vulnerable people dying of a virus. It's a very difficult you know, balance to strike. So I do think that in open societies, you can have some of those discussions, right? It's very difficult. You see that in China right now, it's very difficult to move off a zero COVID uh, strategy when it's been in place and when you don't really have an election or something where you can have an overturn of a government and so on like that. So I would definitely agree that the quality of institutions, the state capacity, the level of democracy really matter. And some studies have definitely shown that. I also think what was very interesting is that you also see the level of politicization. So there's very interesting work in the United States by Tom Popinski, Sarah Goodman, and uh, Shannon Guardian. And they show that in the United States, it was super politicized, right? So wearing a mask, doing the lockdown. Also, my uh, PhD student, Paula Retto, shows the same in Brazil around Bolsonaro. But for example, in a country like Italy, also, the, and I don't know exactly about Sweden, but in, in Italy, the far right parties all wore masks. They didn't, they were not anti-vax. So if you don't have this politicization, it's easier to do the public policy, right? Whereas in the US, it was very difficult, or in Bolsonaro's Brazil, that if you have the president that's saying, oh, you know, it's not that bad, or, oh, you can go outside, or it's just a flu, right? Then it becomes very difficult, even if you have a very good health bureaucracy, or you have a very good level of, of institutions, or, for example, uh, according at least to international surveys, the US was very well prepared for pandemics, but ultimately the response was not good. And that had more to do also with the politicization of a political party, especially the Republican Party, around COVID. And, and that became a real political issue. And in Europe, you saw some of that. In Germany also, you saw some of that in the Netherlands. But you saw, for example, that much less, which I was also surprised by, in Italy or in Spain, where I would have expected more. But I think because there, the hit was very strong. It was very difficult for far-right parties in, in Italy to say that the virus wasn't there, right? Because it was so strong and the and the... You know, the first images out of Bergamo, which was very hit, were so strong that you couldn't really deny that. But then, to be fair, you know, they did still do that in, in a country like Brazil, right? So I do think that it's, that's what you say is exactly correct. So the level of democracy, the state capacity, but also how political parties politicize the issue are additional to these uh, initial rally around the flag that we find, you know, are also very important factors to think about how successful policy can be in the long term. I think that also in Europe, I agree with you to a lesser extent, this happened than in Brazil or in the US, but in a research that we conducted with Andres Rodriguez Poste and Nicolas Charron, in European regions, we see that controlling for the usual suspects in what explains excess mortality, the first wave of the COVID, we found that the, our proxies for politicization at a regional level also had a were associated with uh, higher excess uh, mortality. Exactly. So, so uh, to a lesser extent, but that you had, uh, even if not far-right parties at national level, to the very least at local or regional level, yeah, there were far-right politicians actually playing mini-Trumps, definitely. I think uh, you have said something that is very interesting and also very worrying, uh, that when there is a pandemic, people want decisive governments. And I remember to have read at the beginning of the pandemic this 
paper but Francesca Matt and others on how the authoritarian mind, let's say, uh, wakes up when we have a pandemic. And I was concerned about this issue of up to which extent COVID is a threat to democracy. And then uh, looking at your research, actually, you, you, you also have conducted conjoined and vignette experiments in the US and the UK during the first wave of, of the COVID. And you find that people's attitudes are, you can manipulate them uh, to a certain extent, and you shift the support depending on what uh, your political leader says on something. If Trump told you uh, don't use face masks, you, you do it. But that there are limits to that, uh, we can say, hurt behavior or irrational behavior of the of the voters. Which are those limits? And if are those limits, let's say, enough for preserving democracy, or you could say, or your opinion? Yeah, it's very difficult, right? So to see when those limits are. So what we find there is, and we try really to find the limits. So explicitly saying also like ban a demonstration or ban an election, and it will be favorable for the opposite party, right? In the US, it's very partisan, so Democrats vis-a-vis Republicans. And we still don't find that on those two issues. So on protests and on elections. And I think that makes sense to me. And that doesn't mean that there's no threat for democracy. So what you see is what a lot of populists or far-right parties do is they change a little bit the definition. And there's been some work now on that of what democracy is, right? So what they do is to say, well, elections, yes. You have to be able to say what you want, yes. Uh, demonstrations, you know, like that, those key elements. But minority rights, no. Providing, you know, strong constitutional checks on, uh, on government, no. So what you see is basically... That I think some, you know, overcoming democracy or not having free, fair election is usually quite a step for people who have been educated and socialized in advanced industrial democracies. In more volatile, where you've seen recent shifts, we know that that can change quite quickly. But that doesn't mean that there's not a threat for democracy, because when you ask average people about, well, does that mean that a court can strike back anything that a, that a government does? No, 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 but that's not democratic. But in our idea of, let's say, thicker democracy, or maybe head the work of someone like Dahl, right, where constitutional rights are a big part of democracy and inclusion and making sure that everyone can vote, so also someone who you know, hasn't been in the country that long, but has a passport, or someone who might have been convicted of a crime, but is still allowed to vote according to the constitution, that those things would be accepted. And there is where I think you see quite, I mean, I don't have to say to people who are in Gothenburg, we've shown quite extensively that you've seen a lot of kind of erosion of those kind of ideas. So I think our results are, are let's say, you know, it depends on how you look at it, glass is half empty or glass half full. In the sense that, uh, yeah, there, it's good news that yeah? people don't want to overcome elections and, and, and protests, but maybe that bar is also a bit of a lower bar, right? If you see that it comes to you know surveillance, they might be very willing to let go of all kinds of minority rights just in order to combat a virus. So I do think that you've seen that. And I mean, some other evidence also shows, like Kirim Gavakli is one of my colleagues here in Bukhari, that populists were very slow in responding to the crisis. The response wasn't very good. So you do see also in the sense that there is some effect with the, as you said before, with the level of democracy that you saw there. And we shouldn't remember, you know, Hungary, Israel, where we saw the crisis being a pretense for perhaps some laws that they wanted to introduce anyway, that, you know, restricted rights, especially for opposition. I mean, especially Hungary is a, is, is a good example of that. So 
I do think that that crisis periods are overall very tricky. And I fear, and that's, you know, if I become very pessimistic, but I fear that in the current economic crisis that we're seeing, because many people were already kind of on a difficult position post-COVID, and then we got the war over it, which in, especially in Europe has created a, a huge energy crisis and, and an economic crisis, that work of economic historians kind of suggests that especially inflationary economic shocks that we have now, that they usually always lead to a far-right response historically across time. Uh, that's by Trebesch at all. It was published in Economics. And, you know, they, they, of course, cannot really provide an argument. They just show the empirical, let's say, regularity of this. It, it, you also see some increase in the far left, but much less, so much more in the far right. And actually, I'm doing a project now to try to understand why, in a time of crisis, people don't want compensation, so they don't vote for a pro-distribution party, but they actually vote for a far-right party, which sometimes provides some redistribution, but not in the same levels than the left is doing that, for example. So trying to understand why in a crisis period people go to the far-right to more alternative, what you say, authoritarian solutions is, 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 I think, a really important question. And I don't 100% have the answer to, uh, to that question uh, yet. No, but looking forward to read your research. And apart from the crisis, there are structural factors that are driving this populism. And there is this kind of, I wouldn't call it contest between factors, that what explains populism, but it is the economical factors versus the cultural ones is identity or is inequality. And you and your research provide, a, let's say, a third factor in the sense of, of the role of the state capacity and local services in the case of Italy. And we have also heard quite a lot that the electoral support for far-right parties is often linked to specific geographies of discontent. So people are not happy in different regions, and that's why they vote for populisms. But it's always difficult to know what triggers that those grievances. One thinks about the Midlands, uh, they look like different from the states in the US or in Brazil or in France or uh, Catalonia in, in Spain or, or southern Italy. Out of your research, what, why do you think that uh, local services and the state capacity, let's say, at local level might play uh, such an important role? Yeah, exactly. So there's been very much a deep, what you say, this horse race between is it economic or culture? And to be fair, I, I never really understood that because, and it's also in my work on your skepticism, is that, for example, oftentimes people perceive an economic threat through a cultural lens. For example, if you think about the Brexit campaign, it was, oh, we're, we don't want to have uh, certain people from the EU. And then it was very often about Polish, Romanian, you know, a lot of actual cultural differences too. And then I remember Nigel Farage, hey, who was the leader of the UK Independence Party, saying, oh, well, it doesn't apply to the Commonwealth because those are Brits, you know, or those have the same values as Brits, but, you know, it applies to other people. And that was clearly also economic arguments with cultural arguments mixed oftentimes. But it's very difficult to see that. You also see parties on the on the populist left that have used language that is also quite anti-immigrant. Now, not so, so much anymore. But in 2018, uh, the Five Star Movement in Italy definitely had factions that were very worried about immigration. Now they've moved really much more to the left. So what we started basically was that insight. So like you have this economic and culture and we've done less uh, the interaction. There's been some important work by uh, a very uh, young but great uh, political scientist, uh, Diane Bello, Francesco Colombo, some people who have really thought about grievances and networks of grievances. Diane has a really good paper about pubs and where pubs decline in the UK and that it's a social capital and people feel that it, it's declining. So, you know, quite things that are important in people's lives. So kind of inspired by that research, 
we started to actually we started to kind of look at public services this project that's trying to understand that i mentioned that's trying to understand why people go to the far right then we found also that it's oftentimes not the most poor people that vote for the far right so then we thought okay but they're oftentimes in, in certain parts of cities they can be in part of cities or urban you uh, or rural you see oftentimes where it says rural versus urban that's clear but you also have quite some urban areas or, or let's say more deprived parts of urban areas that also vote for, for the far right. So we were trying to understand these geographies not fitting 100% urban rule. And, and then we started to work very much on public services. And it actually comes from my own where I'm from. I'm from a very rural part of the Netherlands. And my father, who always voted, I think I can say it, he's passed away. So, but uh, he always voted for the Christian Democrats. And at the end of his life, he started to vote much more for the far right, for more extreme parties. And I don't think he was, I mean, who knows, you know, I, I didn't hear so much uh, xenophobic language coming from him. But what the issue was for us for him is that the sellout of the elites in The Hague of people like him. And that was basically he was a farmer. They closed the, the, the like kind of local post office. And then he had to drive much further in order to get money to post things to pay his workers. He was a farmer and he was very upset by that, that he had to incur costs. And that his village, that the, the school was leaving the village, like the kind of this story of decline, right? And it used, I used to be something and, and inspired by that. We then got data in the Italians, very different context, but I think it also applies in the Netherlands. But in Italy, you have much more variation uh, in the country. And what we basically uh, started to uh, work on is to try to understand what the relationship is between what we call public service deprivation, so reduced access to public services, so, for example, having to drive longer to a post office, to a hospital, having less garbage collection, having less police on the street, like a whole set of public services that you can think of. And if you have less access to them, that that might actually fuel the far right. We also use a reform to try to get a more causal, you know, to really try to get a kind of cause and effect. And what we kind of argue is that in these geographies that have been public services provided, people get very dissatisfied. But it's still the question, why did they go to the far right? And what we show is that these reduction in public services increases uncertainty and, uh, let's say, worry about migrants competing over those public services. And I think how we show it also doesn't go to the left is probably also because if you've just experienced all these cuts, it doesn't seem super credible that you can re you know, reverse the cuts, right? So what is left is left kind of thing. So what people then, the, the, the policy package that they start to be more attracted to and which also far-right parties provide is like, well, we cannot increase the pie because many far-right parties are actually not so pro-redistribution. Oftentimes they're also, you know, low tax parties, et cetera. But they say basically the way we're going to give you what you what you deserve, whatever that's in their language, of course, is by just limiting immigration. So we reduce the demand on public services of non-natives in the favor of natives. And that is a rhetoric which resonates extremely well in those areas that have seen the decline. In my kind of own family, I think that was the type of language my father used. Can we say that that's still racist, you know, or, or whatever like that? Of course. But it was basically an acceptable way of saying, I'm worried about immigration. And I'm worried about immigration because I feel that I'm not getting my fair share of the tax base. I'm not getting my fair share of government. And it also, I think, fits some more ethnographic work that's been done in different areas, which also suggests that people are increasingly worried about being forgotten or left behind by their government. So, yeah, that's what we that's kind of the argument that we show. We show public service deprivation, so reduced access to public services increases 
far-right support. And the mechanism we outline is that people get more and more worried about competition over public services with migrants. Well, it's fascinating work, and it's good to know that hospitals seem to matter as much as pubs. <laughs> and, and, and But it's true that this feeling of decay is, is very difficult to get rid of once the narrative of uh, the public services are closing down, even if it is for efficiency reasons. It's almost impossible to convince the citizens they are not in a left-behind place. To conclude our discussion... The most important question, let's talk about your book, <laughs> let's say the book with Sarah Hobolt uh, on uh, the rise of the challenger parties in Europe. Fascinating book, like two years ago, more or less, mm -hmm. was released. Uh, fascinating, where you, you draw these analogies between party systems and, and how firms compete in the, in the marketplace and how this could explain this emergence of these challenging parties in, in Europe, both on the far left and on the, on the, on the far right. Can you tell us a bit more, uh, which is the similarity between Georgia Meloni and, I don't know, Elon Musk? Elon Musk, from, exactly. Apart from their egos, that probably exactly. they have pretty big egos. Exactly, exactly. And also both uh, being kind of professional entrepreneurs, and she's a professional politician, unlike, unlike what she says. She's never done anything else. So what we do in the book is try, you have a lot of discussion, as we know, about deindustrialization, globalization, women's entry in the labor market, educational changes. So a lot of social changes that changed political parties and that changed competition. Hey, you don't have as many trade unions anymore. You don't have, uh, people don't go to church as much anymore. And you see changes in the party system because of it. Social democratic parties losing, Christian democratic parties losing, for example. But we saw also a lot of variation across time and a lot of variation across countries, even though let's say the level of secularization or the level of trade union membership is similar. And what we try to do in the book is to say, well, that probably is what we've not looked at enough in political science is the strategies that parties themselves employ in order to deal with the changes in demand, with the fact that you know, more voters are up for grabs, more voters change their position between one election and the other, so there's higher volatility. And then coming back to the question of like, what does Maloney have in common with Elon Musk? is in the sense that what he did is he was trying to disrupt the automobile market, right? Through Tesla, through an electric car. He also uses a lot of abrasive language on Twitter, you know, like anti-Ford, all these old school uh, automobile uh, car uh, companies. They don't really understand where everything is going. And it's almost the same thing what you see in politics, that what we say is that what successful political entrepreneurs do is they do two things. One, they introduce an issue or a package of issues in a at least novel way for, for the public doesn't mean that it hasn't been done before, but in a in a what we call issue entrepreneurship. So for example, Giorgia Meloni did that very much on she politicized things that were less politicized in, in, in Italy. Her immigration was already politicized, but she also added LGBTQ plus. She always talks about LGBTQ plus ideology that comes from abroad. That was actually something that was not very common in Italian politics, a very different way of doing politics. And she would be consistent, right? Italian politicians are wheel, wheel and deal makers. They change from one government to the other. So she was going to be very consistent. So she provides that. On the other hand, what she does is she uses a lot of anti-establishment rhetoric. So, and that was also what we see uh, that these kind of entrepreneurs do. So in her case, she was the only party that did not sit in the unity government on the Draghi. She was, you know, always kind of talking about this cast of politicians that was not really uh, governing in the interest of, of Italians. And that's 
the combination of issue entrepreneurship and anti-establishment rhetoric that makes these political parties very successful. So you've seen that also in other countries. I mean, this idea of, of the caste was very much associated with Podemos in, in Spain, right? Uh, La Casta, that was the, the, the thing that they wanted to, a very different way of organizing the party, anti-corruption, uh, you know, a lot of different issues that now actually have been a bit co-opted by the Social Democrats, but was traditionally very much associated with Podemos. They do really well. And I think what we're trying to explain in the book is what could explain how long they are able to do well. And I think in the case of taking Podemos again, in the case of Spain, you really very well saw that the big competitor on the left co-opted a lot of things that Podemos did. Sanchez really kind of took a different approach, much more pro-gender, much more pro was cooperating at least not everything but a couple of things of, of, uh, of Podemos and that became very successful. Ultimately, co-opting the party in government and then they're less successful. With Maloney, she was able to get such a big, uh, she was able to kind of do better than her right-wing competitors and is now setting the government. The question will be with her, you know, how does government ultimately, it's difficult to be a challenger uh, when you're in government, right? So that's what we are, what we try to explain in the book is, is, is under which conditions are these challenges successful and, 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 and how does it affect government and, and how can we understand the success over the long term? Yeah, and as you are now pointing out with these examples, it looks like the mainstream parties on the left have been more successful than the mainstream parties on the centre-right in, in order to co-opt. So it can be the result of, of course, uh, personally extraordinary candidates on, on the centre-left, politicians like uh, Sanchez, who are very skillful in Spain and others. But I think you see it all over in Europe, and, and this connects with actually what you have said before. In times of crisis, we see actually the far right, not the far left, who in principle we should think they would be the, the main winners of this contest for the votes of, of the people who are unsatisfied with the workings of democracy. But for that, probably for your next book, based on your on your uh, research. And uh, Catherine, thank you very much for a fantastic conversation. We have learned a lot about your research and also about uh, the, the trends of uh, how we are evolving in public opinion and how we are uh, moving in, in Europe. To be honest, uh, the direction is more optimistic, actually, than what the data at, uh, or the media impression one might have when looking at the nuances of your research. So thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation.